Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Hello, so um, I'm David. Uh, if you haven't met me, I've been here for about six years, so what have you been doing? <laughs> um, yep, and it's also, which means seven years, means it's only been six years since I first asked Stephen Viv if I could preach. So it's fun facts. <laughs> Not that I'm bitter. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I'm going to be preaching on Psalm 44, uh, and I've titled the sermon, Knowing God When He Seems to Have Abandoned Us bit wordy, but um, yeah, and I want to argue that the psalm is both hopeful and hopeless, depending on uh, how we read it and the worldview that we're reading it from, um, and yeah, we're going to look at what the, what the psalmist says about suffering and how hopefully it can strengthen us for times when we're suffering. Uh, so the, the context for the book of psalms is that thousands of songs and poems were written uh, that were circulated and, and sang by God's people. And then about 530 BC, uh, 150 of those were then compiled into one book that's then divided into five parts, which we now call the Psalms. Uh, and this is Psalm 44, which is in the second book, which is all about crying out to God in times of suffering. Uh, so we'll, I think, read it now. Uh, we've heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You were my king and my God who dec- uh, decrees victories for Jacob. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through you, we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God, we make our boast all day long, and we'll praise your name forever. But now you've rejected us and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You've made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their head at us. I live in disgrace all day long and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this came upon us, that we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sleep to be uh, slaughtered. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. 
Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust, our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us, rescue us because of your unfailing love. So, I just realized that I didn't read this from here, so I now need to flip through the printed version. Um, yeah, so we're now just going to look at the, um, the context of this psalm. So the context is fairly unknown. Um, we don't know why the people of Israel are suffering, uh, but we do know that they've actually met formally to cry out to God. Um, so if you just imagine for a second that at the beginning of this service, uh, you know, Viv had said, right guys, in light of the disasters in London or, or whatever, next week we're going to meet, make sure you're there, and we're just going to cry out to God in anger and confusion. Uh, it seems really odd, but this is, this is exactly what they're doing. Um, and that's what I'm going to touch on in this, in this talk, is that this psalm gives us a clear reason why we can go to God angrily with permission and it, to him in our confusion. Uh, so the psalm is broken up into what I think are three kind of main sections. Uh, verses 1 to 8 recall God's miracles and his faithfulness to the previous generations. God's nine to 20, uh, God's, <laughs> verses 9 to 24 tell God of our suffering now. And verses 25 to 26 appeal to God. Um, when I first started looking at this psalm, I've got to admit that I found... The narrative, kind of, um, not really clear, not particularly fulfilling. You could almost say that it starts with, God's been really good in the past. Things are bad now. Hopefully God will help. Which I didn't find like a really strong narrative. I didn't find it overly encouraging. Um, you know, is the answer to disappointment just to hope even more? Um, but, yeah, there's a lot to be said about suffering in this psalm and how, how we approach it, um, how we approach God in our suffering can be yeah, crucial in terms of how we hope and live. Uh, so, yeah, the psalm starts by remembering God's goodness um, to previous generations. But what's so encouraging is that the second section, which I'm going to touch on shortly, that's where all the anger comes out. That's where the confusion comes out. So I'm going to say that I think the psalm shows us that first and foremost, it's most helpful to come to God in, different, in difficult times from a place of, of worship and acknowledging his goodness. But I want to add the caveat that section two shows us that going to God angrily is perfectly legitimate. It's something that he's totally okay with. Um, and if we don't feel strong enough emotionally to, to start approaching God with, with worship, um, he loves us enough just to listen to us when we're angry. Um, so, yeah, the, I think we've got the next slide, which should be... Yeah, there we go. So this first section, um, we've heard it with our ears, oh God. Do, 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 do. So the first thing to note in this is there's the acknowledgement, which I think is really stunning. There's the acknowledgement that it was only God that made these things possible. It was not by their sword that they won the lands, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. Um, yeah, so I think this... this oh, I've gone totally off-piste. 
Oh, yeah. So this is, I think this is stunning because it shows us that both, it, well, it's an example that when we're at our weakest, when we remember and we ascribe God the, the worship and, and the praise that he's due, not only does that give us hope and reminds us of, of his love for us, but it can also inspire us because we look back at those occasions and we realize that the victory at the end was never dependent on our strength. So we can truly be weak and still expect still expect breakthrough. Um, I would actually urge people in, in times where, where things are really tough to look at the book of Exodus, which is what's being referred to here. Um, it gives us a foundation of seeing a sovereign God in a terrible time. And I think the lie of suffering is that we believe that God has just abandoned us, he's just disappeared us. Um, and the book of Exodus shows us that things can be chaotic and God can be in control at the same time. Um, do, do, do. Yeah. And I was actually, I had a, uh, a nervous breakdown when I was 18. I became extremely suicidal, which is something I'm going to touch on shortly. Um, and it was, it was the book of Exodus um, and the Psalms, but the book of Exodus that I found most encouraging. It actually wasn't the verses about God's good and there's hope and etc. Cetera, et cetera. It was just seeing life fall apart and God be in control. Um, doo -doo -doo. Uh, yep, so the, we're now going to look at quickly the book of Exodus. Just a little bird's eye view. So the story of Exodus... Sorry, I've skipped several slides. I'm terribly sorry. It's slide 11. <laughs> so if we were to sum up the, the, um, the book of Exodus, God blesses the Israelites. They take the blessing for granted and do exactly what they were told not to do. Uh, they discover the consequences of their actions, which is always my least favorite bit. Uh, and they cry out to be rescued. God then does rescue them and blesses them. And then the cycle continues. So the question for me is, why would, why would God keep doing this? In an example where the suffering is actually their own fault, why would God keep saving them? And the answer is in verse 3. It was your right hand, your right arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. So it's God's love that was the motivator in the saving, not their, not their behavior. So when we are suffering, and it is our fault, or it is... The, the consequence of something we've done that was unwise, we don't need to, we don't need to think, right, well, God's not going to bless me because this was my fault. We've got a clear example in the book of Exodus that God's motivation for saving us is not our behavior, it's his love. Um, yeah, and, and I, wish, I wish that I'd uh, known this when, uh, when I was younger. I had uh, a breakdown when I was 18, following years of bottled up kind of trauma. Um, when I was 10, I woke up one evening and just found that I'd lost the use of my legs. I'd been perfectly healthy until that point. Um, and I was then bed bound for months and relying on a wheelchair. Uh, I was missing a lot of school and because it was like an invisible illness, people just thought I was making it up, not just schoolmates, but teachers and even doctors. Um, so I felt like my life had crumbled and just no one understood and I felt totally abandoned. And I was really, really angry with God. I felt like as a family, we'd always tried to do our best. We'd always loved God and put him first. And all of us, within the space of three years, had been diagnosed with really terrible health conditions. And I was just furious. Um, 
So yeah, I had a little snap, didn't get out of bed for months, uh, got put on antidepressants, and eventually I met with my pastor, and he really shot me by saying, you have every right to feel totally disappointed, uh, which I hadn't really heard before. I think I'd grown up with a view that God's really good and we're nobodies and you know we should just be grateful for whatever we can get. Um, and yeah, and I, I couldn't go to God and say, well, you know, I, I like to think I've been all right. Where have you been? Um, so in fact, I just stopped talking to God. Um, and I said to my pastor, Look, all I've got for God is, is rage. Um, I can't talk to God without shouting or swearing. So because of that, I'm, I'm not going to do it at all. Uh, yeah, and I, I also told him, you know, I was seriously contemplating ending my life. And the only time that I would get out of bed... Uh, was just to smoke a cigarette. Um, And when I would do that, I would go into my garden and I would listen to the angriest, most aggressive, like, hardcore punk that I could listen to. And I would just process, process all the pain. And as my pastor wisely advised me, he just said, invite God into that. Next time you're just totally, if you feel totally broken and you're processing your pain, just acknowledge that Jesus is, is with you. Just acknowledge that he's with you, that he's next to you while you're smoking that cigarette, while you're wondering why on earth these things have happened. Just acknowledge that he's with you. And he then told me to go to the Psalms and to look out at all these verses that cry out to to God really angrily. Uh, And this is what the Psalms do. They shatter the, the religious illusion that we can't go to God angrily, we can't feel disappointed. Um, But they show us a God that uh, loves us so much he's actually willing to endure being yelled at if it means that we have that relationship with him um, you might have once asked a friend how they're doing he would say like what's wrong and I said nothing nothing and that's that's not helpful if you love the person you actually you don't want to hear that nothing's wrong you can see that there's something to wrong and you, your love means that you want to find out what the issue is so that you can restore that relationship Similarly, think of uh, occasions when you turn on the news and a child has gone missing and there'll be a press conference with the police and basically every time the the parents will say, we don't care what you've done, it's all forgotten, please just come home. Um, And that's that's how God is with us. Even when our suffering is is our own fault, he just wants us, us in communication with him. Um... So, do, do, do. we are now going to section two, which I'm going to gloss over quickly because I'm going to close with it. Um, <laughs> um, so it's verses 9 to 24 that we looked at earlier where they start, the Israelites start crying to God as a people. Uh, and it seems they've done nothing to deserve it. And then again, section three. I told you it was quick. Section three. Uh, it's just more hope. It's just more, well, hopefully God will, God will do something again. Um, but while hope is important, if we invest our hope in something that ultimately will let us down, or in the case of you know, religious beliefs, isn't even real, that hope is destructive. It's the more hope we invest in something, the more fulfilling it is when it pays off, and the more destructive it is when it ultimately lets us down. So actually, having this hope that God will step in even though he seems to have abandoned them, when there's no source to that hope is, is dangerous, it's, it's, it's meaningless. 
I obviously do have faith in Jesus, um, and therefore I, I, you know, I agree with this conclusion of the psalm, that even when you can't see God, he is there and he will step in, and the answer is to have more hope. Um, but I do think it's easy when you're reading this psalm to think, why does this psalm ultimately matter? If it is just, you were good, things are bad, things will be good again. Why is it here? Well, so when Jesus was crucified by the Romans and then resurrected from the dead, the disciples think that he's a ghost. They can't believe that they're seeing what they're seeing, the risen Jesus. And he then tells them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So Jesus is actually saying, if you want, if you want to know that I am who I say I am, go to the Psalms, because they're all about me. I'm in those Psalms. They're about me. So because of this, if we look at any Psalm hard enough, we will see Jesus in it. And that's what we're going to do. <laughs> so we are now going to go back to the second section of this Psalm, which is just the, the crying out in anger and confusion to God. And we're going to see numerous descriptions of suffering that Jesus himself actually endured. These aren't just the complaints of the Israel. They are foreshadowings and prophecies that Jesus says point to him in the Psalms. So let's just look at um, verse 12. Israelites say, You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. Well, in Matthew 26, we read that one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, and one of his closest friends, handed Jesus over to the Romans for 30 pieces of silver. Now, this took place 500 years after this verse was written. Jesus was sold for a pittance 500 years after this. And in fact, we're told in Exodus that 30 pieces of silver is what many people would pay a slave, a slave owner if they had injured someone else's slave. So what the Jews meant to do was mock, was mock this so-called Messiah and say, look, we wouldn't even pay any more for this guy than a slave. But we know that's because God had a plan and Jesus was going to come a slave to sin uh, so that we could, we could live. Uh, yeah, in fact, I put it much more articulately when I wrote it down. <laughs> what the Jews decided to pay Jesus... God worked out to show us that ultimately it was really Jesus that was sold for a pittance and that he was the real master, but that would give himself up to be sold. Uh, we see another image of Jesus in his crucifixion in verse 14. So when the psalmist says, you have made us a byword among the nations, the people shake their heads at us. Matthew 27 says that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the people who were going by shouted blasphemies at him. They shook their heads at him. In verse 14, the psalmist says, All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. But in the book of Corinthians, we read that, that the reason Jesus was punished by being crucified, uh, that Jesus was punished through crucifixion, even though he'd only been faithful to God's covenant. And that was because... God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So verse 17, we suffered even though we didn't deserve it. God suffered that he didn't deserve it. He really hadn't. Um, he really did fulfill the covenant. 
verse 19, the psalmist says, You crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. And when the prophet Isaiah prophesies about this savior who's going to come and he's going to save the Israelites from their suffering, he writes, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. So Jesus was crushed in the same way that the psalmist feel crushed, but literally. And Matthew 27 verse 45 tells us that when just before Jesus died, darkness fell across the land. So Jesus died at about noon. And darkness ascended on the land. So while the psalmists feel metaphorically crushed and under darkness, Jesus was literally crushed and the sky went black. So their, their metaphorical abandonment became literal with Jesus' death on the cross for them. And verse 22. Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sleep, sheep <laughs> to be slaughtered. Well, Jesus is often referred to uh, in, in the Bible as the Lamb of God. So Jesus was the Lamb, or the sheep, that actually did face death all day long. Crucifixion is known to be the most excruciating and longest way to die. Jesus was the sheep that literally faced death all day long. So, where is the hope in this psalm? It's in verse 11, when it says... You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. When we look at the book of Revelation, which is when uh, John had a vision of how eternity would be, how the story of earth would end, we read, After this I looked, and before me was a great multitude no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. So that verse is a reversal of verse 11. Verse 11, a sheep has been devoured and the people are scattered. And John has a vision where the people who have been scattered will gather around the lamb who had been devoured for them. It's an absolute reversal. Um, and this is ultimately what awaits us. This is ultimately what awaits us for those in Jesus. If we ask Jesus to take the punishment for the wrong things that we've done. Um, oh, I've missed a page in my notes. Let's, let's ad lib. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, then, then this, is, this is what awaits us. Whatever suffering we're going through now or might go through, this is how it ends, because Jesus suffered for us. So while this psalm is about a bunch of people saying, why have you abandoned us? We've done nothing wrong. Uh, they trust God will send them a solution. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I'm paraphrasing Tim Keller here accidentally. But um, God doesn't send a solution. He sends them Jesus. Jesus will be betrayed by his closest friends. He will be crushed. Uh, and he will go through torture, even though he didn't deserve it. All so he could save us. When I was suicidal, my main issue was I was furious at the idea that there was this God in heaven that just sat well above the, the pain and the suffering of this life, and he just expected me to be good, and things would be bad, and if I then acted badly, I then had to apologize. I had to endure these things that he wasn't enduring, but I had to be grateful. And I think that's actually a really legitimate 
atheistic argument is actually, does a God have any right to just leave us and then expect us to still be grateful when things are terrible? But this isn't the case of, for in, in the Christian faith. Our God actually did leave his position of perfection and privilege to join us in our place of misery. And because he has suffered, we now have a God who knows what it's like to suffer. The end story of our lives is that every tear will be wiped away, which is what's written in Revelation. It says every tear will be wiped away. Uh, there'll be no more t- crying, no more mourning, no more pain, for the, order, the old order has gone and the new has come. That is ultimately how this ends. And I think it's so important. It's, I should have been in there, but it's... Oh, it is there. Oh, well done, me. Um, yeah, Revelation 21, verses 2 to 4. I, I think that is that verse probably saved my life more than I, more than I can realize. That was the ultimate truth. The absolute pain and my just desire for years to be dead. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That is how this ends. And in the meantime, we have a God that knows what it was like to be abandoned by God. We have a God who knows what it was to suffer without deserving it. We have the perfect person to go to. Um, Yeah, the person who loves us. There's no one that loves us deeper than Jesus. And there is no one that can empathize more with feelings of abandonment, depression, physical pain, or betrayal. Which is what we read in Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Jesus has been put through the ringer. He's experienced more suffering than we ever could. And he's done it so that we can, the scattered people that are suffering, can join around him at the end and worship. And there'll be no more crying. There'll be no more pain. And in the meantime, our ambassador, he's lived it. He's lived it far worse than we ever have. And he understands. And he wants us to come to, to, come to him in our pain. He wants us to bring our darkest thoughts, our biggest disappointments, and to just know that he's near us. Um, So I'm going to invite the band up. Um, And yeah, I would just urge you, if you feel able to, um, to think of an area in your life where there's pain and disappointment and just, just open yourself up to the idea of truly going to God with it really just knowing that he knows suffering, he knows pain, he knows disappointment, um, and just ask him to comfort you. Ask him to comfort you and ask him to give you the hope that you need to get through it because he will do it. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.